Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I planted some serious seeds here. Give me like a tweet or give me an Instagram post, because at this point we were suffering. This was January, February now, February, March. We had a nice holiday for our first year. And then January, there was a little bit of buzz around setting your word for the new year, but it started being like crickets. So I was hoping that Rihanna or Beyonce, somebody would tweet about it and we would get some orders and keep the project going. And none of it happened. So by April, I was like, okay, I think I'm done with this. I think this was a nice little chapter, but I don't think there's anything here. I don't think it's sustainable. Hi, friends, and welcome back to another exciting episode of At the End of the Tunnel. So this week's interview is with someone whose interesting life trajectory and propensity towards generosity and service inspires me every day. Chris Pan is the founder of My Intent, which is the mission-driven bracelet organization that aims to create connection by helping people identify their personal intention, or as Chris calls it, their word. It could be gratitude or courage or focus or whichever word exemplifies what they want more of in their life. And then the word will get hand stamped onto a metal washer, which the recipient wears on their wrist to remind them of their intent. But my intent is about much more than just wearing a piece of jewelry. Ultimately, it's about bringing people together and helping them discover their best self. Chris usually travels everywhere with his My Intent Maker Kit. Not only because it's the perfect icebreaker, but it's a very good way to go deep quickly and establish meaningful connections. And over 40,000 other people have received maker kits to create intention bracelets for their friends, family, church members, classmates, or anyone else who could use a little reminder of what's most important in their life. In this interview, Chris shares the story of immigrating to the U.S. from Taiwan without speaking any English and how he experienced lots of loneliness and why he went to work in corporate America and how he landed in Silicon Valley and why he quit a dream job at Facebook in favor of starting a spirit lab, literally. I think you're going to love this story. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Chris Pan. Thanks for coming on to the podcast, Chris. As always, I'd like to start these conversations talking about childhood. And so my question for you is, do you remember what your favorite toy or activity was when you were a kid? Yeah, I think I had these little army characters. I think I had some Power Rangers, G.I. Joes, imaginary friends. Would you play with them by yourself? Yeah, it was mostly by myself. I didn't have many friends growing up. I was pretty isolated. Do you remember what your intent was? Yeah, it was probably a combination of the cartoons I watched and then just 
killing time and just kind of playing. I didn't play that much as a kid though. I, I felt like it was, it was a pretty lonely experience as far as I can remember for parts of it. My parents had left me when I was four and between the ages of four and seven, I was uh, raised by my grandma and my grandparents. And then when I was seven, I came to the U S to get reunited with my parents and they felt like a bit like strangers at that point. And I, I felt like something just, it didn't feel natural. And, and I, now looking back, I think there was a lot of hurt and a lot of pain that got in the way of that, but I didn't realize it at the moment. And there was a lot of isolation and a lot of just loneliness as a kid. I, I came to the U.S. when I was seven. I didn't speak any English. And so I couldn't really play with other kids very well. It wasn't until probably two, three years later that I actually learned the language and I could start to socialize. But for the first year, year and a half, two years, I didn't really have friends. I was in Taiwan until I was seven. But my parents were there from zero to four. And then they left when I was four to the U.S. to you know have a look for a better future. So they had G.I. Joe cartoons in Taipei? No, the G.I. Joe cartoons was when I got to the U.S., but I don't remember that much of what I played with when I, I think I, they were Power Rangers. That was pretty popular. What was your mental state? I know you say you were lonely, but how did that affect you mentally, if you can remember from that young? I don't. It's all a bit of a blur from those early days. I just remember it was difficult when I came to the U.S. I was kind of feeling lost and just kind of getting by because I was in a totally new environment. It was pretty different. You know, being in a place where I didn't look like anyone else and couldn't speak the language. So it was it was hard. Do you remember missing Taipei when you were a kid? No, actually, not really. I didn't really look back, but I was just kind of in this new situation that I was adjusting to. I don't remember that much of it, though. I was just kind of adjusting. It must have felt good when you finally got a grasp on the language, though. You were able to communicate with other kids. Yeah, I mean, that that was better, but I was still different from all the other kids. So I was still a bit left out. How would you summarize your childhood then in terms of your internal state looking back now? It was a series of challenges. It was a series of having to learn something. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I had one school district from second to fourth grade, moved to a new school, school district, had to start all over. And then in eighth grade, I moved to Beijing for a year and a half and then had to start all over again and then moved back to the U.S. So every two, three years, I was in a different environment. And every time I was in a new environment, there was adjustment and having to kind of start from the bottom again. It was always like I just kind of figured it out and then I got dropped into a new place. <laughs> what did you learn from that experience? I guess some, some sort of resilience or some sort of you know, drive or you know, something. But it was, it's not easy. It was always like, oh, just made it. Okay, here we go again, you know. Were you a decent student? Were you pretty one of the smarter people in your class? Or? Top 10, 20%, but not like, not the very top, but... My parents pushed me pretty hard academically. I graduated, was pre-med, went to the Ohio State University, was really involved as a student leader, and ended up graduating, did pretty well in, in college, went to med school for three three weeks, and then realized it wasn't my thing, dropped out. That was another hard decision, and then pursued business and pursued a startup that didn't work. And then I 
jumped on the management consultant, ended up getting into you know Harvard Business School. That was exciting. Then had a whole corporate career after that. Okay. So I just want to rewind a little bit. <laughs> you mentioned that you were a leader at Ohio State. So you're going from being a lonely kid, not a lot of friends, moving in different environments, constantly frustrated. What opened up when you got to college? You know, most of the other students weren't interested in being a student leader. Like they weren't interested in being involved at Ohio State. A lot of the students were going to keg parties and just playing video games, and these opportunities were there. And I was intrigued by them. I was in, I've been tri- intrigued by psychology and you know human development. So I just volunteered for these opportunities, and and I, I think it was like my sense of community and my my identity was that I was a student leader. And also there was some pressure that as a uh, pre med student, you know, I needed to check the boxes on the on the leadership side. So it all just kind of fit and I fell into it and uh, really enjoyed it. I've always been really interested in the idea of leadership and personal leadership and the quest for meaning. So that's always been on my mind. So in college, I had the opportunity to do it. And it also, you know, worked out well for the resume too. So it was like a win-win all around. And talk a little bit about this pre-med thing. Like how committed were you to being a doctor? It was much more placed on me. I think I, you know, my parents wanted me to have a secure future. And and one that was noble. And so they thought, well, what better, you know, profession is there than to be a doctor where you always pretty much have a job and you're helping people. I watched Patch Adams and I was really inspired by that. And I thought, yeah, this is this is really meaningful. But once I got into med school and I saw the path ahead and to some extent that the repetitiveness and the monotony, I think I've never been really good at things that were repetitive. And, and I still struggle with that because, you know, the typical doctor, you know, you just you see X number of patients every day and it's kind of the, the same for the most part, unless you get into administration or something else. But yeah, that, that was the original push for my parents. So Patch Adams sealed the deal. You saw the guy with the clown nose and making people laugh and you thought, I can be that guy as a doctor. I, I think I used it as justification. I think I was hesitant, but then I saw that and I was like, well, you know, I was inspired and I think I've been inspired at different moments, but the question is always how long does that inspiration last and how far does that get you? Even now, like I have moments where I'm inspired and then I'll do something, but then it's like, can it last? Right. So Patch Adams bought you three weeks of medical school. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Tell me, what was that like? What happened during that third week that just made you say to yourself, I can't do this anymore? I, I remember meeting a, a third year. Uh, actually, I, I met a fourth year who was in, I can't really remember if it was a guy or a girl, but in, in his or her fifth year. So this person had taken a year off between third year and fourth year. And, you know, the most of the students I met, the, the senior students were pretty happy and they were into it. But I, I met a few that were definitely resentful of having gone down the path. And when I talked to them, I was like, oh, yeah, this is probably going to be me because it's a very challenging path. And I was like, yeah, I'm probably going to be one of those that did it probably for the wrong reasons. And I wouldn't be able to just, you know, I barely make it through or I'd be really unhappy. It's a really tough path. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential 
or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. It also sounds like maybe you were looking for confirmation bias. Like you didn't want, really want to be there in the first place. So you found <laughs> the one person who said that they were, it was horrible. Exactly. <laughs> so what was the first call you had to make? Did you call your parents and let them know or how did you pull out? I actually don't remember, but I think I definitely talked to my parents. I What was helpful was the school had a, you could leave for one year and still have your spot back. So then I wasn't completely giving up med school. I was just taking a year off, but I pretty much knew I wasn't coming back. But I think that was just a nice safety net that in the event that during that one year I to change my mind, I could actually have my spot back. And that was an interesting thing. It was such a big deal to get a spot in the medical school that it almost was, you know, it's like, did I, like, like, what was it all about? You know, was it just about getting the spot or actually wanting to be a doctor? Was it about getting the spot looking back now? Well, I think it felt good getting the spot. That it was like validation, you know, because mm-hmm. it was it's like, oh, wow, you got accepted. That was such a big deal. And but in the end, it wasn't the right fit. Where was this medical school? University of Cincinnati. So what was plan B, man? What did you do on that fourth week? Did you go back home to your mom's house or what, what happened? I was living with my parents at the time anyway in Cincinnati because that's where I'm from. Luckily, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I know I called my friend, my best friend, and he let me stay with him up in Columbus and I quickly re-enrolled in a bunch of business classes at the Ohio State University and went through the whole recruiting cycle and just plugged right back in. And I was going to do either computer science or business. So I got very lucky that Ohio State school year back then started in late September, whereas the med school and, and most schools started in late August. So I had just enough time to get myself you know, right into something else. So I didn't have a whole lot of downtime. And then I took classes that quarter and then and did recruiting and then got a bunch of offers. And that was when the economy, I was really lucky. The economy was super hot then. It was right before the crash. And a lot of companies were recruiting on campus. So I got multiple offers that were pretty attractive at the time. Did you notice a mental shift when you left med school and got back into business studies? Was it very noticeable? Because I can imagine how much tightness or tension you probably felt in those first three weeks of med school, maybe versus feeling open and loose during the business studies. And how did you explain away the medical school dropout after three weeks things? I can imagine recruiters aren't really that impressed by somebody dropping out after such a short period of time, unless you have a really compelling explanation for that. I think I had a really strong resume 
as an undergrad. And so they were willing to overlook it because the market was so good. So I was pretty lucky in that sense. Did you even include it? You probably didn't even include it, right? I don't remember. I mean, it wasn't, I don't think it was on my resume, but it was definitely an odd situation where I, I had already graduated with one degree and then now I'm back taking classes again. But luckily I had a really strong resume that they kind of didn't, it didn't bother them. So I ended up with like five offers that quarter. So I was really lucky. And how'd you feel mentally after you, after leaving and getting back into school? It was good, but it was interesting. I turned down all the offers then and I ended up trying to start my own company. That was the first time. So I, I these grand ideas, I wanted to have a dot-com that would allow me to you know retire early and get the financial freedom and all this stuff. And so that was in the fall of 1999, right before everything crashed, I think January of 2000. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how much the audible that you called in medical school, I wonder how much that played a role in you turning down those other offers. Because I feel like what happens a lot of times is when you pull out of something that had so much expectation around it, it's almost 10 times easier to be a little bit pickier and choosier with your path going forward because you don't you now you see what it's like to let people down or whatever, let yourself down or whatever story you tell yourself around why you should do whatever you think you should do. And I think I feel like that opens up a lot of internal options. I'm wondering how much of that you felt when you turned down those offers and, and decided you were going to go into business for yourself. I remember the cover of Time magazine or USA Today it was about these young kids who, you know, it was the globe.com. They had started a company that all of a sudden overnight on paper was worth you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I was like, oh, I want to be like that too. And so that was the dream, not necessarily working for other people. Right. So you're motivated pretty much by money at the time then or success. Yeah. Money, success. Yeah. Okay. What was the company that you started? Empowered Students. It was going to be a, a network of college portals where students could learn about what was going on on their campus. It was like a almost like a precursor to Facebook, you know, because Facebook ended up being like what you were doing. Because back then on campus, there was the official school website, but there weren't websites for what was actually happening extracurricularly, just like socially at each campus. So I wanted to start a network of websites that would cater, you know, one for each campus. You know, we'd have a back end that would, the students would then fill up the front end and, and so forth. None of us really knew what was going on. We tried to recruit some computer science students to build it. And after you know five months, the market tanked and it just wasn't looking promising for any startups. So then I called back McKinsey, which was my um, top choice at the time. And I said, hey, actually, uh, instead of turning down the offer, um, I'd love to accept it if you're still open for it. And they graciously um, took me back. So I was really, really uh, lucky to have that as well. Did you lose your shirt in that first company? No, I didn't have much money. I mean, it was mostly just time. It was time and just, you know, reputation and, you know, just trying to stir something up. But no, I didn't have much money involved in that moment. What's your mental state like at this moment in time? You're starting at McKinsey. How are you feeling inside? I was excited. I wanted to go learn. I was like, okay, I think maybe I'm not ready yet for my own startup. So let me go learn and train and just see what it's all about. Did you have lots of friends and stuff from your college days? I had a few, but not like a not like a lot. And then I moved from Columbus to Cleveland and I was all by myself up there and had to kind of make new friends, new social circle and 
yeah, it was it was tricky. Just out of college, moving to a new city. At least I had a job, so that was good. So I did two years at McKinsey, and then the reason I wanted McKinsey so much was they had a very good track record of sending people to you know Harvard Business School and another top business school. So that was my main impetus for going to McKinsey. Right, and that's exactly what happened. You ended up going to Harvard Business School, correct? I did. I had an amazing time at Harvard, <laughs> graduated and went back to McKinsey in New York. So I needed to go back for two years to get my loans paid off. So instead of going back to Cleveland, I said, I want to try something new. Let me try New York and did it for a year. And I realized consulting wasn't for me. And I realized the city life wasn't for me, like in New York City. And at that time, I had a offer from PepsiCo to go run digital marketing for China, which would have entailed me moving to Shanghai. And I thought about it for probably three, four months. And then finally, I pulled the trigger and moved from New York to Shanghai. What did you find about New York socially that you didn't connect with? I mean, you know, in the world I was in, you were basically in finance or nothing because New York is so expensive. And so it just felt like you had to be in, in either some hedge funds or private equity, investment banking, you know, working crazy hours. I mean, consulting was like almost like a tear down as a consultant in that world. And, it, you know, everyone just working so much, just partying. I don't know, just it just wasn't interesting anymore. And plus, my life then was I was flying out of New York every Monday and then going to you know Cincinnati, Ohio, or going wherever the client was, and then coming back Thursday nights. So it just wasn't um, it wasn't for me. It's a very intense place, as you know. You left there and went to Shanghai. To Shanghai, worked for PepsiCo for a year and a half. Learned a lot. Was super inspired by my boss for a retreat and. It kind of it was like a bit of an awakening that was it's like what am I doing with my life? So I ended up thinking about it over the next week or two, and then ended up resigning after the retreat. And then I spent six months trying to start a company in in Shanghai. And then after actually about three months, I realized that it wasn't what I thought it was. It was a lot harder to start something than than I expected. And then I spent three months trying to find a job, which is then I how I landed back in the U.S. working at Facebook. Just before we get to that part. So you're in Shanghai and you resigned, you said, after retreat. Did you have any sort of spiritual practices or any kind of inner work happening in your life at that time? Were you like reading any motivational books or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, more motivational and inspirational. I wouldn't call it spiritual practice, but definitely um, was looking for purpose and a way to give back. And during that time, I was at a talk by Muhammad Yunus and he had started the Grameen Foundation that lifted a million women in Bangladesh out of poverty. So I was definitely very interested in social good, social impact. And I've always been interested in all that. But I've always had a conflict of, on one hand, I want to live a certain way as well. And, and in Shanghai, I wanted to actually start a charity to give back and all that. But then I realized for the cost structure, you know, for me to maintain my lifestyle and to give back in a place like China, it was not going to work. That was a disconnect. So it was tough. I hosted some social gatherings and then I ended up teaching at uh, one of the universities. I did like a weekly, I did a seven habits of highly effective students. So I, I gave back, you know, with some mentoring of some college kids there. Okay. So you resigned after the retreat and then you started searching for another job because the business that you tried out didn't work out and that uh -huh. led you to Palo Alto. Yeah. And that was a dark summer, that summer of 2007. Because it was a good three months of searching. Because this is when I 
around May, I realized, okay, my entrepreneurial ventures in China, you know, I'd done about five months of trying different ventures. It didn't, it wasn't working out. And then I realized for me to sustain myself, I need to actually get a real job. And that's when the job search began. And it was depressing because I wasn't finding anything for quite a while. And I remember every day waking up and just being really sad and you know, depressed and isolated and having a lot of regrets that I had quit otherwise a pretty good job. How long was this dark period? Good three months. So you spent that time in Shanghai. Yeah. What would a day in the, in the life be like during that time? Wake up, you know, look on social media for jobs or look online, you know, read the tech blogs, wait for interviews. I think I had some little side gigs people were offering me at the time and you know, work out at some point. And then at night, my I was dating a girl at the time. She'd come back from work and then we'd hang out. But I remember being, there were a few moments being like really, really sad. And you know, we'd go for a walk in the park, but it was, it was definitely a downtime. Did you open up to anyone about how sad you were feeling? My mom, her, and then I think my brother was there at the time. So a small group of people. Talk about the transition to Palo Alto. I saw in the tech blogs that this, um, this guy named Chamath had just been hired and I found his email address at his previous firm, uh, the VC firm called Mayfield. So I emailed him there and I said, I wrote him a really, you know, two paragraph. I just said, Hey, this is, uh, my name is Chris. This is who I am. And then here's how I can help you. Very succinct. And I got a response back within a few hours. And he said, Hey, put your thoughts in a PowerPoint and let's talk. So I spent a couple of weeks, put my thoughts down, email it to him. I was very nervous because I realized I had kind of one shot to get his attention and and at this point, I had already pinged multiple people at Facebook who I knew, but nothing had come of it. And then yeah, I think he liked the PowerPoint. Then he scheduled phone interviews with me and a few people. And then he offered to fly me out to Palo Alto. So then I did a whole day's worth of interviews and then uh, flew back to you know Shanghai. And then I started packing my stuff up, anticipating getting an offer. And then I got an offer and I packed up everything from Shanghai. And, and then there I was in Palo Alto and started a new chapter. Did he ever mention what he liked about your PowerPoint specifically? I mean, I think he said it was thoughtful. I think he could tell I put some serious thought into it. And he just looked at my resume, looked at you know how I went from McKinsey, took a leap of faith to China. And I think there was something about that that he liked was this sense of adventure, this entrepreneurial spirit. What was your state like there at Facebook? It was uh, eye-opening. When I was at PepsiCo, I was kind of the crazy one, the, the rebellious, the more just out there. And when I got to Facebook, I ended up being the older person in the room. I was 30 <laughs> at the time, and most people were in their you know mid early mid-20s. I was definitely the conservative one all of a sudden, and they were thinking much bigger, much more progressive. you know. And all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, okay. So I had to unlearn a lot of the stuff I had learned at McKinsey and PepsiCo to fit in at Facebook. And they also really prized people that could code and people that were technical, and so that was a bit humbling to then all of a sudden not be you know, technical and not be like one of the engineers. But I was working closely with the engineers. What's an example of something that they would think big about that you noticed that you had some limiting beliefs around? Well, when I joined, there were 50 million users on Facebook. And they were already planning for a day when there'd be like a billion users. To me, that was pretty wild because I was thinking, okay, 50, then you would think about 60, you know, 100 million, <laughs> 120, 150, like, like that. But they're already thinking like, oh, what does it look like when the whole world's on this platform? And, it, you know, I just wasn't thinking like that. Different way to scale. But if you look at how fast 
you know, these tech companies are growing, it's, it's pretty wild. To achieve that kind of scale, normally it would take decades. And that was like the hot time. Of, I mean, it must have been so exciting to be at Facebook during that time. Yeah, it, it was, it was, I call it like being, you know, with the Bulls during, you know, when Michael Jordan was there. When I joined, MySpace was about 120 million users. I think Facebook was 50, but growing fast. Within a year, I think we had caught up. And then within two years, you know, MySpace was kind of gone. And then all of a sudden Twitter launched and we were like, whoa, what's this Twitter thing? And then Google had launched a couple of social networks, but then they all kind of fell aside. But we were on a rocket ship. It's very rare experience to be with you know, people of that caliber, you know, with a product that was working and it, it was, it was insane. What were you doing for Facebook? Product marketing was initially brought in to, to figure out ads. And then as different priorities came up, I, you know, I ended up on user growth for a while. I looked at mobile, looked at our pages product, looked at getting into China and so forth. How did that whole thing wrap up? The end of four years, which is the amount of time it takes to vest the initial stock package. I uh, kind of looked around and I didn't see myself, you know, it was a good run, but I was ready for something different. And so I stayed on a little bit longer. Look, I just looked around, but didn't see anything that was you know, intriguing. So I made the decision to leave. And during that time you were living, I believe in San Francisco. Yeah. You had started these little community events. Can you talk a little bit about that? During my time at Facebook, I was playing in a cover band. So we had a lot of gigs as part of the cover band. It was a group of Facebook employees that you know we got together and we did that. And then after leaving Facebook, I ended up at a retreat that profoundly you know impacted my life. It's called the Hoffman Process. And I realized the value of inner work. And I realized I wanted to have more meaningful, you know, deep conversations. Out of that, then I started a few gatherings at my house where I'd invite people over and we'd play music and we'd chat. And then I had a birthday party that was basically my farewell party to San Francisco. I invited different friends to come. And then one of my friends who came, you know, different friends brought different gifts and different talents. And then one of them brought a, a maker kit, a kit to stamp bracelets. And, and then subsequently gave me one. And then that's what kind of essentially planted the seed for the My Intent bracelets. But it was a desire to build community and to, to, you know, just feeling like I wanted to connect with people. Right. Did you have a name for it at the time, that that community event that you did, the birthday farewell party? It was just a birthday. I called that one, it was a, a birthday wish. And my wish was to, I forget, it was something around something meaningful, you know, for me to share what I've learned with other people and then for people to share with each other. Just something positive and something meaningful. That was it. Very, very simple open and different people brought different gifts. I had another friend who um, he came and he asked everyone to write a dream that they have and then on a post-it note and then underneath it, like one step they could take to achieving their dream. And then on that wall was, you know, everyone's dreams. It was like a dream wall. So, you know, it was just a very positive, inspirational event, you know, similar to what you probably experienced at The Shine. And who was your friend that brought this maker and why did they bring that? Why did they think you'd be into that? It was just something that she loved doing and she just brought it to share with people. In the same way, like other people would bring maybe, you know, some muffins or bring a bottle of wine or, you know, it's like you bring a gift. Not everyone did, but some people did. Some people brought smoothies. And so that was her gift that she brought to share with everyone. We met up for dinner like a week later. And then she's like, hey, you're moving to LA. Why don't you take the kit 
and make it for some people in LA. I mean, it's just a little hammer, a little metal block, some, you know, some washers or tokens that you get off of um, like an arts and crafts uh, website. I mean, you can get them off of different places. So I think she had multiple ones and I think she had a habit of just giving them to certain people that she liked. It was like a gift that she would give people. Why were you moving to Los Angeles? Uh, I had a friend show up in April that year and said, uh, he said something pretty profound and he just said, you need to, you know, he's like, God has a plan for you in LA. You have to go move there and help people in LA. <laughs> Who's and, uh, his friend? Jason Ma. He's a pastor, but also he's a Hollywood agent. He's a very interesting guy. <laughs> Can you set the scene a little bit? Like where, where, where was this conversation where he told you this? So I had a gathering. My friend Tim told me, hey, Chris, you have this house with a great view. You should have a gathering. So I ended up having a gathering, the first of probably three or four gatherings. He doesn't actually make it to the party, but he sent 10 people there, of which Jason was one of them. We barely connected at the party, but then we got each other's numbers. And then he texted me probably on Monday and he said, hey, I need a favor. Can we have lunch tomorrow? So I said, sure. So this is Tuesday and he shows up and, and I help him with this little favor. And we had a mutual friend that he wanted me to try to convince to take on a movie role. And then he like all of a sudden turns to me and he's like, hey, you know, and he has the gift of prophecy as he, as he says, he's like, hey, I have a message for you and you need to move to LA and don't worry about money. Just go there and help people. At the time, I was about to buy a place in San Francisco. So I'd already been apartment shopping to buy something there. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, well, maybe uh, I'm going to change course. And so that summer, I got a sublet for a place in LA for two months. And at the end of that two months, I was like, oh, well, maybe I, I will get a, a place and stay. And I remember it was like on a Monday or it was like on a Monday, I think. And then by Tuesday, my friend texted me and said, hey, I'm moving to New York. Do you want to take over my house. And that was the house in the hills that you and I met at. And then by Thursday, I think I visited and I already signed the lease or something. But that was very quick. And all of a sudden, I had a home in LA. So it all happened very quickly back in 2013. And then I started, I started hosting gatherings there in 2013 and 14. Because you had this really beautiful place in the hills. There was this kind of infinity view from the deck <laughs> with the yeah. pool and the, the whole thing. Yeah. That was nicknamed Spirit Lab. Yeah. So how, how did that name come about, Spirit Lab? Just thinking about the intention of the place. I wanted it to be focused on you know helping people feel better organically, like naturally without substances or, or whatnot. And, you know, we just do simple activities like singing, yoga, you know, conversations, healthy cooking. And then I, I nicknamed it lab because I wanted to be a bit experimental and hands-on and we could try stuff. And if it didn't work, there's no big deal. So that that's how the name came about. I've been to several of the Spirit Lab events. So I'll just describe a little bit of what my experience was. You show up, there was a maker's kit <laughs> pretty much right near the entrance. Someone's making bracelets. You could paint. There were paint stations. There were, you could write affirmations on things. There was music set up, a little uh, music stage set up outside on the deck. And there were people around having conversations. And I think that was encouraged as well as having those conversations. Yeah. It's like a mindful gathering. Yeah. Had you ever attended an event like that or did you create it because you have not been to anything like that before? 
I had not. So that's why I created it. I got some of the ideas from my time at the Hoffman because we were doing things like painting and having deep conversations and some movement. So they were inspired by um, a retreat I attended, but I hadn't been to any. So that's why I created it. You know, it was like a mindful afternoon where you could do these different activities and you would feel great by the end of it. How did you find all these people? You just moved to town. <laughs> where did the people come from? <laughs> it's LA, man. <laughs> There's lots of people, you know, friends would bring friends. People are looking for something to do on a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon. I didn't charge anything. So I think that helped. It was just word of mouth. What came out of that in terms of like you didn't have a job at that point that you reported to. So what was your plan for employment and all of that? At that time for the fall, it was just hosting these gatherings. They actually took time to prepare and to set up. And so that actually was a bit of effort. You know, I was meeting people. So I was going to different events and, and being pretty social. I think I picked up photography at one point during that period. And then I was making these bracelets for people everywhere. So I didn't really quite realize how much fun it was to make bracelets for people and to ask them for a word and then make it for them. Then they'd have this big, you know, grin or they'd give me a big hug after because they were really touched. And so that's, that was kind of the, the foundation for my intent. What was the genesis of the word thing? Where did you get the word concept for the bracelet? Initially, it was just this idea that you pick a word that you wanted as inspiration or a little reminder. I mean, when I was at the Hoffman, we did a lot of that kind of work. I think it's pretty common in coaching and therapy where you go around and you talk about what your intention was and and then boil it down to one word so it was more memorable. So I think it's pretty common in, in the kind of wellness practices and was a matter of combining it with putting it onto something that we could wear. So the genesis, the initial idea was probably at the retreat I was at and then my friend showed me how to make the bracelets at my birthday party. And then I came to LA and I just started making them and that took on a life of its own. You know, I started figuring out, like I started sourcing different materials that were more affordable and that were easier to use. And I ordered all different materials. I, you know, went on different websites and then eventually optimized it for my liking. You know, it's, it's like, it'd be like someone showing you how to make a coffee and then you like kind of innovated on top of it to like dial it into the perfect, you know, frappuccino you liked or something. And did you have that sort of Facebook mentality at that point after having been there for four years where you saw this as something that could become huge, this whole what's your word thing and put a washer, washer on your wrist and and spread this movement of, of inspiration? I think so. I, I think there were moments when I thought it'd be cool to, but I never – I didn't really think it would go that far. I just thought, it'd be, oh, it'd be kind of interesting and I kind of dabbled with it, but – it wasn't until I got invited by our mutual friend, Tori DeVito, to make these at her um, fundraiser. That was the first time we'd ever taken money for these. Because up until that point, we were just giving them away. And we raised $2,500 in three hours you know, with four volunteers. So I was like, whoa, people are actually willing to chip in when it was for a good cause. And they really liked them. So that was the first experience. And then the second experience was trying to help a couple friends with, you know, providing some income. And then, you know, that's how we ended up launching the MindTent website, the name, you know, we had a booth at a farmer's market or a night market, the Hollywood night market up in Yamashiro. So our friend Nick Spano uh, runs that night market. So when we were looking for a place to try, he's like, well, why don't you come and just set up a station and see if anyone's willing to, to get some. We had like modest success. 
made enough to cover a cost each time. That's pretty much it. I remember back in the early days, you would have gatherings at your place. You were doing photography, and you would take these beautiful pictures of different people. And every now and again, I guess some celebrities would come to some of your gatherings, and you would have those photos. And people would always be holding up their wrist to show their word. And you knew everybody's word. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So is that after the night market? That was before and during, because I was also dabbling as a photographer during that time. I wanted to pick that up as a hobby. And then it just turned out that before I would take a photo of someone or do a photo shoot, I would also make my bracelet. And then it just worked out that the bracelets were in many of the photos. That fall during the holidays, it got a bit busy because of holiday orders. So that that was a bit of a surprise. I was like, whoa, there's actually maybe a little something there. I didn't realize that um, just because it's popular during the holidays, it may or may not be popular the rest of the year. So that was a learning because then I was about to dial it down. And then I actually went to Bali to go figure out my next steps. The fall, when you the orders picked up, you had it. Was that when the Today Show featured? No, that was a year later. Okay. How did you guys get traction then for the holiday orders? It was just friends. I don't think we were running any ads at that point. I actually have no idea how people found out about us. We just had this little thing. People just did it. And yeah. Because one thing I, I want to just mention and acknowledge about you at that time, because you know I, we, we're, we're friends and so I was around, is that you were very generous with your time and Pretty much in any event that was happening in the wellness community in LA, you were there with a booth. With it, you would even bring your own table and your light and your LED <laughs> yeah. light. Oh yeah, it was you, a lot you, of work. You'd, you'd always hear this kind of yeah banging in the background, and it'd be you yeah. back there making you personally making yeah. people's oh yeah bracelets. We did a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, you did a ton of that. So it kind of makes sense that there was an organic traction that was created from that because you were literally everywhere. Everybody knew you. You started to see people with the bracelets on who you didn't, you didn't know that there was a connection. When did that first happen? When did you first see a bracelet on somebody that you didn't personally put it on, like out in public somewhere? I don't remember, but it definitely happened. I, I don't remember. But, but I, do, <laughs> I, I do remember – we were at your house. That was a big moment too. Like you had us at your house for your birthday party. It was your yeah. like, housewarming. Yeah. And then I brought a friend. Yeah. And then afterwards, that was when we brainstormed and came up with the name, the My Intent name. Up until that moment, it was just intention bracelets. That was a pivotal moment. I think May of 13. No, May of 14. May of 14. Talk about the Soho House experience that happened just before you went to uh, Bali. So that was in late January a friend, John Teo, invited me to have a catch-up with him at Soho House. I brought my maker kit, which I guess at the, at, during that time, I, I still actually bring it to most places. It's a fun little party trick. It's like a magician. You know, you always bring a deck of cards. So this was like my, my little party trick. So I brought it, and, and I saw Jay-Z in the back corner of Soho House, and I thought maybe he'd like a bracelet too. So I approached him and you know, made him well, a One of the rules at the Soho House is you don't go up to people. Yeah. That you don't know personally. <laughs> and and you, you were aware of that, right? Before well, you went I, to Jay-Z. I, I wasn't a member. I was a guest. So I don't know if I was fully aware of that. So I just did it anyway. Didn't get yelled at for that moment. 
you know, and he really loved it. And he ended up saying, Hey, uh, can you come to my, my programming brunch next weekend and make these for my friends? And that was a big invite. And then, uh, and then we did. When you went up to Jay-Z, what was he doing? And what did you say? I said, were you nervous? A little bit, but not really. I don't know. I just, it was great because when I initially spotted him, he was talking to some, he was talking to two other people, or at least one other person. When I went back, they were on their phones, which I think they were on a break, which made it actually ideal because then, it, you know, it wasn't like they're in the middle of a conversation. It was like the perfect timing. And I just said, hi, my name is Chris. I have a gift for you. And I gave it to him. I had actually put a word on there for him already. Usually I have people pick their own word. But I didn't want to go up to him empty-handed, so I already made something for him. And he really resonated with it. And then his friend said, hey, can I get one too? And that gave me the perfect opportunity to have a seat and got me more time to explain the project and talk about what we were trying to do. And, and then he really liked it. The word I picked for him was educate. I looked up on Wikipedia a, a bit more about him, and I saw that he had the Sean Carter Foundation. And their mission was to bring education to underprivileged youth. And so the word educate came to mind. And so I put that on a word and I put the initials of his foundation, SCF, for Sean Carter Foundation. And I guess it really, it touched him. And then I asked him, I said, do you want a different word? I can make you anything you want. And he said, no, 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 this is perfect because I'm also educating the world about title. He was launching title at the time. And so he, he thought it was pretty perfect. And he asked me to tie it on his wrist for him. He's like, you know, he's pretty proud of it in that moment. <laughs> I love that. I, lo yeah. I love that story, by the way. It's just to have the gall to take that leap of faith and go up to Jay-Z. Because again, in that environment, it's really frowned upon to do that kind of thing. <laughs> and the fact that you did that is pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah. So then he invited you to his Grammys brunch that he does every year. Uh -huh. And what happened, what happened there? Uh, we met Beyonce and Rihanna. You know, we asked them. And they all picked their word and I made one for Kanye. And well, initially when I walked up to Kanye, he's like, let me think about it. And I, so I thought he, he might've blown me off. And so I was like, that's fine. No big deal. But then Rihanna wanted the word faith. So then I went and dropped it off with her and keep in mind, their table was very heavily guarded with a lot of bodyguards, a lot of commotion. And so it took me a while to even get to them. And then after I gave Rihanna her piece, I felt a tap and it was Kanye. And then he's like, I got a word. He's like, beautify. I was like, okay. So then I went back to the table, made the bracelet, went back to give it to Kanye. And there was at this point so much commotion around that table because you can imagine it was, you know, even though there was a party of maybe 500, 600 people, this was the table to be at. You know, it was mm -hmm. Jay, it was Beyonce, it was, you know, and there were all the bodyguards around it. So I give it to Kanye. I put it on him. He really appreciated it. And then he got interrupted. And I was like, oh, I turned around. I was like ready to leave. And then I felt another tap on my back from a bodyguard. And I looked around and it was like Kanye giving me like a little nod, like a thanks. And I was like, oh, that was kind of him. And I was like, didn't think much of it. So I left. After this brunch, you must be super excited, right? Like you're thinking, okay, this thing is about to take off for real now. Yeah, I was like, I planted some got all serious, these serious seeds here. So like, give me like a tweet or give me an Instagram post. Because at this point we were suffering. This was January and this is like February now, February, March. And we had a nice holiday for our first year. And then January, there was a little bit of buzz around, um, you know, setting your word for the new year, but it started being like crickets. So I was hoping that Rihanna or Beyonce, somebody would tweet about it and we would get some, get some orders and keep the project going. 
and none of it happened. So by April, I was like, okay, I think I'm done with this. I think this was a nice little chapter, but um, I don't think there's anything here. I don't think it's sustainable. So I'm going to go to Bali. When you say crickets, what do you mean? What, what were the numbers like compared to what they were at the end of the year? I don't remember, but like a couple orders a day. I mean, literally like nothing. Like not enough to pay. pay for, you know, we had staff. We had a warehouse space and we had some inventory. I mean, granted, in the grand scheme of things, everything was still fairly small at this point. So even if I would have shut it down, I would have lost probably like, you know, in the maybe tens of thousands of dollars at this point, And it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. Maybe like a few thousand dollars. I forget. So I was prepared to shut it down. I, I was like definitely contemplating. I was like, I don't think there's anything here. It was like a nice little experiment. And then I, I was going to always make bracelets for people as a personal gift, but I didn't think there was anything worthy of um, like an actual project. And were you feeling personally defeated or do you feel like your, your spiritual practices at that point were strong enough that you could have perspective on this and just say, ah, you know, just do something else if this doesn't work out? Yeah. I, I don't remember how I was feeling. I do remember just, I had a friend who was headed to Bali and said, do you want to come along? So I uh, said, okay, why not? What have I got to lose? So I just got a one-way ticket to Bali. And, you know, when I was there, I, I actually fell <laughs> on my third day there. My original intention was to do a lot of yoga. And then I, I fell and I scraped my palm pretty badly. So I couldn't do any yoga. So the only thing I could do was like sound healings, a little static dance and some meditation. So that ended up being what I did for the most part over three weeks in Bali. And did the numbers improve? No, no, it was literally dying. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> it was like us. It was done. <laughs> it was like done. And what happened next? Well, on the last day I was in Bali, I just got a massage. I sat down at dinner by myself, and then I opened up Instagram, and people were tagging me in this photo, and it was Kanye wearing his bracelet on the cover of the time 100. And so that was like, whoa, like what just happened? And so all of a sudden I'm scrambling to try to make something of this. So I had a friend who has a, has a blog and he wrote an article about it. I had a couple friends write articles and then it got us a bit of traction so that we actually got some orders in and it started, it actually gave us like some lift at a moment when it seemed like it was about done. What was interesting about that cover is that it was a pretty close cropping of his face and Kanye literally had his hand up, just like those pictures that you initially showed of people putting their hand up and, yeah. and it showed his, his bracelet was all worn down. It was like droopy, yeah. but it was like he was so proud of that bracelet, that washer with that word beautify on it. Yeah, it was interesting. I talked to the photographer who shot it, Sebastian Kim, and he said – because they asked him about every piece of jewelry and clothing. And they asked if they if he wanted to keep it on. And he said, yeah, yeah. He's like, this is my word. So he didn't refer to that as a my intent bracelet, but he thought of it as that's my word. And it was his connection to his intention. And that I think is, is the magic of this is when, when we help people truly connect to their intention, it's not about my intent. We're just the canvas. We're just, we make paper, but it's their intention. And numbers went up a bit. And then that summer, you know, I was hustling. We booked more events. We showed up at different conferences and I hired someone to help us do events. So I started, we started picking up steam. And then in New York City, I was at this event called Blog Her. And we were this little booth on the floor 
Uh, we didn't have any furniture there because it was expensive to rent furniture. So we were just making these for people on the floor. And I think that's really the magic of, you know, it's like, it's not the same on the website as it is when you have someone in front of you helping you find your word. So we had this booth. The booth next to us was a Today Show. And they had this like, it was probably three, four times as big as we are. Lots of furniture, big LED screens and whatnot. But we were the ones that had like this line kind of wrapped around sometimes, but no one else really did. And people were really enamored with this idea of like, oh, you can come here and get some custom jewelry made. And the producer from the Today Show came over. We, you know, she got a bracelet. We connected and she had a moment. She was, had some tears in her eyes when I asked her about her word. And she was like, you're good. And I was like, I, I just asked her a question. But I think maybe, you know, for me, I think there's a lot of people out there who haven't had that moment of pause to connect with something bigger than themselves. And we simply just offer people that pause and, and it connects them to their spirit or their just, you know, something bigger. So that happened. We got each other's emails. A few days later, I get this email from her saying, I think I emailed her. I was like, Hey, I'd love to um, you know come by and, you know, hopefully maybe get a story or something of us. And she says, Hey, my bracelet broke. And I was a couple blocks away from the Rockefeller center. So I, of course I respond right away saying, Oh, I'm a couple blocks. Do you want me to come fix it? She's like, yeah. So I actually showed up and as I, it was totally unplanned. So I showed up and she was very excited. She, you know, introduced me to her boss. She introduced me to her colleagues. And then next thing you know, I'm in their micro kitchen or, or their, their little kitchen area, their staff kitchen. And I bust out the kit because, you know, people want, I'm like, do you want a bracelet? And I just start making bracelets. And then she, I think she grabbed the cameraman and just had him start filming B-roll. And then by the end <laughs> of that session, she's like, oh, we'd like to do a story on you. And uh, how about the end of the week? And so this is probably like a Tuesday. And so Friday morning, we filmed the story in my friend's loft in uh, Soho in Manhattan. So this is mid-August. I was totally burned out. I had been, you know, meeting after meeting, trying to do partnership deals. I was like this one person machine trying to do everything. And then a week later, I go back to LA and I get an email. She's like, okay, get ready. You know, we're going to launch the segment this weekend. We're going to air it. And then, you know, that would be like Wednesday. And then Friday, I would get an email saying, oh, wow, you know, the producers, they're going to pause, you know, we're going to save it for another week. And this happened probably five or six weeks, where by October, I'm thinking, you know what, I think I must have bombed the interview. And I don't think they're ever going to air this. I think this is just a, they're just trying to be nice or something. And so we had this pretty decent first real holiday season. And we were like, kind of done for the year. I was like, okay, like, this is pretty good for our first full year. And then I remember December 19th going to bed. This is a Saturday night going to bed. It was kind of quiet and not thinking anything of it. And then the next morning I woke up and, and on December 19th, I think we had $2,000 of sales. I think the peak was maybe 6,000 for a, a single day. And then it dropped down to 2000 by Saturday. Cause obviously, you know, the Christmas orders were done. It really kind of just, you know, it was, it was slow. And then I woke up the next morning with like $200,000 of sales. And this was $200,000. Yeah. This was by like 9am, maybe 10am. And I just was like, what in the world? And I was like, holy shit. And I looked at my emails and there was an apology from the producer saying, I'm so sorry. Like they didn't tell me, so I couldn't give you a heads up. But I guess at 2am, they decided to pull the segment and air it. And I was like, holy cow, you're apologizing for like the biggest single day we've ever had even to this day. Like, why are you apologizing? I was like, oh my gosh, it was so crazy. But yeah, life life is un- unexpected, huh? How many bracelets would you say, if you had to guess, would you say you had made up until that point? Oh, probably like a hundred thousand or something. 
you put that much effort making a hundred thousand bracelets to get to the two hundred thousand dollar single day sales from the Today Show. Yeah, I mean, out of two hundred thousand dollars, that's probably like fifteen thousand pieces out of that. You know, depending on you know average prices, you know, or twenty dollars. So that would probably be like ten thousand pieces. You know, something like that. I'm sure compared to the Facebook days, it must have felt very much like a labor of love before it finally sort of took off and, and got that big recognition. Would you agree with that? Or did you did you kind of still see it as, oh, this thing is going to get big one day and and I'm just going to keep putting more and more, more time in? Like, what was your motivation? I mean, it's changed. I mean, I've always thought this was a powerful tool to help people. I think there's some part of it that, you know, it is kind of my validation or my own credentials of this is like my my next act after Facebook. But, you know, I, I believe that this product uh, and this process of reflection and, you know, having something that means something to you is powerful. You know, it's especially today, uh, more than ever, it's, you know, it's an anchor during these turbulent times. It can be a North Star, you know, guiding us to stay on track on our path. So it's a powerful tool. And I, I, you have 50,000 makers out there in the world. Is that correct? Yeah. That number? Yeah. So we have probably around 50,000 people that have bought the tools to be able to make bracelets for their friends and family. You've made over a million bracelets now. We've had probably over two plus million pieces out there in the world. Tell me a couple of stories. I know there's one woman who's going into surgery. Can you talk about some of the stories of people who, that you've heard that have touched you who've had a bracelet? Yeah, that one meant a lot. It was a photo of, uh, it looked like a catheter, like something going into her veins. You know, like, you know, when you're in the hospital, they put that needle thing into your veins. And then it had a bracelet and the bracelet said courage on it. And her friend had made it for her. And she says, I begged them not to cut it off before my big surgery. And I think she was going through, um, I, I forget what she actually, but she was going through surgery. I think it was related to cancer. And it just meant so much to her to have the word courage, you know, uh, and she said something like, you know, I think the universe wanted me to have this as I go into my biggest challenge. And so that combined with another interview we did with the director at a hospital, she said, you know, what, what this bracelet does is it makes the intangible tangible. So if you have a concept like faith, you have a concept like trust or hope or strength, it's easy to forget in the hard moments. And by having it, on your wrist or around your neck, it's there. And it, you know, reminds you that that's your intention. That's what you have. Well, look, man, I just have a few more questions that I like to ask as I'm wrapping these interviews up. One is while you were building your movement, what is something that you needed the most help with that may surprise people? I mean, support, obviously. Without people ordering, without people participating, there would be no movement. And there's a great YouTube video of a TED Talk that talks about how the first follower is actually the most important person. And, and I always think about that. I always think about someone could be crazy, but they're just kind of doing something crazy on their own. But to start a movement... You need followers and you need people to, to go along, support, you know, people participating, people buying it for their colleagues, for their friends and family who also think this is a cool thing. You know, that, that makes a big difference, obviously. 
And how are you defining success these days? I think I've redefined it after my last week. Uh, I spent some time with a mentor (laughs) who's a venture capitalist up in San Fran. And he said, you know, before we were also obsessed with uh, unicorns, which is, you know, these billion dollar companies, you know, growth at any cost type of mentality. But a lot of the employees who work there are not necessarily in the healthiest mental and physical states. You know, they're burned out. They're, they're just a lot of stress to try to get to that billion dollar valuation. And he says, well, what if, you know, it's not really so much about unicorns, but it's more about zebras who are um, healthy at any scale. And so I've been thinking a lot about that because I think there's a dose of me that wants, you know, my intent and whatever to be huge, right? The bigger, the better, you know, it's, it's like, oh, if you're not in the you know tens or hundreds or, you know, billions, it's like you didn't make a difference in the world. And, you know, I've been reflecting on that as, you know, can we have a project that is just healthy at whatever scale it is, but, you know, it's, it's more around how the team members feel. Are we actually having real impact? And then whatever scale is fine. It doesn't have to be a certain number for it to be making a difference. What advice would you give to someone else who had an, an idea similar to how my intent started? They have something that they want to give to help people and they wanted it to obviously spread and become a movement. What, what advice would you give them? Well, figure out how passionate you are about something, I think. And, and part of it is we only know by doing and is just do it. Just serve and you know, understand your own intentions and why you're doing something and whatever it is, just, just get out there and do it and, and make sure that you're not burning yourself out. Make sure that, you know, you're still, I mean, there's definitely be hard moments when you want to, you know, throw in the towel and, and maybe it's okay sometimes to throw in the towel. Like it's okay to pause, to put things on pause. And I can't remember what I read a couple of days ago that it was about a couple who were um, uncoupling. And the idea that just because a couple is uncoupling doesn't mean that it was a failure. And I thought that was really profound. It's like, you can actually start a movement, you can start something and do it for a number of years, but there's nothing that says you have to do it forever. And if it wasn't meant to be forever, it's okay too. You know, I think that takes some of the pressure off of us. I mean, like, if you think about the shine, like you took a break and it's, you know, totally okay. You know, like what's not to say, like you can start a movement, like, and at some point maybe put it on pause if it doesn't fit anymore or, you know, someone else can come and take the reins over, you know, just the path isn't always to like some massive number, but to like enjoy each event that you put on or enjoy each moment. It's not like a destination we're trying to get to, but it's just enjoy the experience along the way. Beautifully said, man. Well, we've reached the end of the conversation and I like to offer reflections after hearing your whole story. Cause even though you and I are friends, there's some things that I've heard during this conversation that I did not know before. Huh. And, uh, yeah, one was, you know, your childhood. I didn't realize you had gone to a new environment every two to three years and that you were very lonely as a child. And, you know, thinking back to you, or in my imagination, at least playing with those GI Joe characters and power ranger characters and whatnot on the, on the floor, it kind of makes sense that you're, enthusiasm around making bracelets on the floor (laughs) would be, you know, 30 years later or however many years later would attract the kind of attention that it did because it has that sort of, and I've seen this, your enthusiasm is contagious and it makes people feel seen. It makes people feel connected in a way that you probably weren't, didn't have when you were 
a child. And so it's like you've almost used that experience to channel the type of relationships that you always wanted to have as a kid. And I think that's, you know, I always, I've get, had a lot of these conversations and I've seen that there's always a strong connection from childhood to what people eventually end up doing as, as their passion or purpose or as, as their path, at least at this point in time. And so I just want to acknowledge you, man, for taking the risks that you took. And, you know, you, you left a series of very impressive positions and jobs in order to search for something. I think that was probably a little bit more fulfilling within. And all of that led you to what you're doing right now. And you're, you're a big inspiration to me as well as to a lot of other people. So just want to appreciate you for that and acknowledge your courage and and your generosity, you're, you're absolutely one of the most generous people that I've ever met. We've talked about this pretty recently, how, you know, you can live a normal sort of so-called normal life, but if your heart's in the right place, you're, you know, things are going to work out. You don't really ever have to be focused on success or money or any of those things. And I feel like you're a living, breathing example of that, where you give so much and you get so much as a result. And maybe it doesn't look like it's connected on the surface, but I feel like it, it's very connected. So just want to thank you for that. Thank you for having this conversation. Does that, does that reflection resonate at all? Yeah. <laughs> the childhood, Chris? Yeah, it, it, was, it was good to start that far back. It's not often that we go that far back. But yeah, a lot of the work I've been doing with my therapist have been uh, helping me kind of make the connection, make, make that connection that you just made about being seen and heard. And yeah, there is something special about that moment, you know, of making someone a bracelet, it's, I think it's addictive in a way. It's probably why I keep doing it. You know? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And you get people to help and to do it as well. So easily, like it makes everyone who's, who sees that wants to do it for them, for their friends or for their company or for their retreat. Yeah. And I, I just think that's really, it's, it's really cool to create something like that, that people want to own and take on as their own. Yeah. In such an enthusiastic way. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. If you, uh, yeah. And if, if those of you guys who are listening have not, have not heard of my intent, uh, you probably have seen somebody with a my intent bracelet on at this point, but now you'll know what that is when you see a photo. We'll put all the links and stuff to everything we've talked about in the show notes. And hopefully if people want to get a maker's kit for themselves, they can. And or I know you guys are producing a lot of content right now through the My Intent uh, website. You want to talk a little bit about what's happening right now with My Intent? Yeah, we're offering daily uh, sessions to help you find your word, to help you, you know, live your word. Uh, it's all at myintent.org/live, and they're with amazing instructors right now. Most of them are teachers from the Hoffman process, and that's the place where I did my initial self discovery. And so they're all free or donation based. So we'd encourage you to take advantage of that. Thank you for listening to my interview with Chris Pan. So Chris and I are friends and I had to pretend like I didn't know a lot of those answers because I wanted you to experience his story from beginning to end. Needless to say, I really appreciate him for joining me on At the End of the Tunnel. And I hope that this interview has you thinking about your word. And in case you're curious, my word is create. If you want to hear more stories like Chris's, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and check out the archive. 
You'll find many other interviews with amazing people who have overcome all kinds of challenges in order to start their movement. And what we find is that the obstacle itself oftentimes plays a huge role in defining whatever your movement is. And these conversations are kind of designed to inspire you to use your biggest challenge to find your purpose or your movement or your passion. And if you like what you hear, please rate the podcast. It helps other people discover these inspiring stories. And as always, you can find everything that Chris and I talked about in the show notes, as well as a transcript of our entire interview on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, make sure you sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email. That's just a short message that I send out every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. I think you'll really enjoy receiving those. It'll be a great start to your day. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new conversation from the end of the tunnel. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.